his numerous books, particularly the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Harry Truman, make him seem already a friend. So do his frequent appearances on public television, where he has been host of such programs as The American Experience and Smithsonian World, as well as a frequent narrator of documentaries, including his unforgettable presence in Ken Burns' The Civil War. For these accomplishments, Mr. McCullough has not lacked for recognition. At a White House ceremony, President Clinton recently presented Mr. McCullough with the Charles Frankel Prize. Twice he has won the National Book Award and twice the Francis Parkman Prize. The list of these awards is lengthy, including an Emmy for his contributions to PBS. While his achievements make us delighted and honored to welcome David McCullough to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, he has an additional dimension which makes him a very special guest. Not content to remain at his writer's desk or before the television camera, Mr. McCullough gives much time to advancing public well-being. He is a leader in the Protect Historic America movement. He is active in seeking to strengthen libraries in our communities. He works to improve the teaching of history in our schools. In these and other ways, Mr. McCullough personally seeks a more civil society in America, and for this he has been one of the few private citizens ever to be invited to address a joint session of Congress. Our gratitude for his presence today can best be expressed by President Clinton's comment last October in making the Charles Frankel Award recounting how Mr. McCullough has done so much to help America understand the value of history and our place in it. The president said, we should never forget what David McCullough has asked us to remember. And we should never forget his incredible contribution in helping us to preserve that memory. Please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum Mr. David McCullough speaking on the topic, American society, civil and uncivil. Thank you very much. Uh, for someone uh, brought up in the Presbyterian Church, whose name is McCullough, to be here and be introduced by Dr. Gordon Stewart, uh, that's uh, pretty close to being on home ground, and your, your welcome makes me uh, feel that even more so. I uh, appreciate the comments about my work in television. It's um, it's different from what I thought it would be like, and it's probably different from what you imagine it to be like. And of course, there is a certain sense that maybe uh, when you go places, people will recognize you. And uh, Dr. Stewart is from Philadelphia, and I grew up in Pittsburgh, and we in Pittsburgh sort of looked upon Philadelphia as really the big time. 
And they lived over in the eastern part of the state, and uh, they had all those uh, fine buildings and great American history. So when I was invited recently to speak in Philadelphia and drove there with my wife in a rented car, and we pulled up in front of a beautiful hotel with doormen standing waiting, I felt this is, this is pretty nice for a fellow from Pittsburgh to arrive in Philadelphia this way. And I popped the uh, button for the trunk, and Rosalie got out on her side, and I stepped out of the driver's seat, and as the man was taking the bags out of the trunk, and I walked around the back of the car, and he was a wonderful, big, handsome fellow, and he said, Mr. McCullough, he said, welcome to Philadelphia. And I thought, isn't this wonderful? <laughs> And I said, if you don't, if you don't mind my asking, how, how do you know who I am? He said, the tag on your suitcase. <laughs> I have to, I'm moved by this uh, setting with one more remark, which leads me very directly into my main points this morning. When the, uh, Supreme Court decision about the school prayer came down. A New Jersey radio station decided to send a crew out to some of the public schools in the area to listen to the children in the first, second grade kindergarten saying the Lord's Prayer for the very last time. Never be said again in schools. And they recorded this all around the area and came back to the studio and they started to listen to what the children were actually saying. <laughs> and I can't remember them all, but two of them I will never forget. One was, give us this day our jelly bread. <laughs> but my favorite of all is, lead us not into Penn Station. It's our children and our schools and how we are educating our children that I am so concerned about and that I want to talk with you about this morning. In television, in public television, there is a man who has been on the air longer than anybody in public television and who has taught more children, reached more children than any human being who ever lived. He's Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. And Fred Rogers is an extremely interesting man. He is both an ordained Presbyterian minister and a trained child psychologist. And his programs are broadcast every day from Pittsburgh, and they've been on the air now for more than 25 years, and Fred Rogers does all of it. And all that he does is based on some very fundamental concepts. He isn't just making up programs to entertain children. He is teaching with every single program everything he does on the air. And if you've watched Fred Rogers, as opposed, say, to Sesame Street, you know that Fred Rogers is not teaching children how to count from 1 to 10 in Spanish. He's not teaching them the capitals of, the, of Europe or whatever. He's teaching them about being human beings. 
He's teaching them about civil and uncivil behavior, conduct, citizenship. And most of what Fred Rogers is teaching, as he will himself is always the first to say, is, be, are, is based on the teachings of a marvelous professor of child psychology at the University of Pittsburgh named Margaret McFarland. And Margaret McFarland essentially taught one thing, and that is that most everything depends on attitude. And that attitude isn't taught, it's caught. That we catch the attitude of the teacher. To teach a child to be kind, to teach a child to share, to teach a child to tell the truth, to teach a child to be loyal to friends, whatever is to demonstrate it, is best done by demonstrating it in front of the child by being that way yourself, if you're the teacher. Attitudes aren't taught, they're caught from the teacher. And the same holds true for the attitude of the teacher toward the material she, he is teaching. If the teacher is bored with the subject, if the teacher finds the day very long and can't wait till the end of the day or the end of the term. The children, the students, catch that right away. If the teacher's bored with it, why should I be anything but bored with it? And too often, too many places in our country today, there are teachers teaching subjects that they have almost no background in and almost no interest in whatsoever. We are raising, to a degree that's, a, that's a really a, a national tragedy, a generation of young Americans who are, for all intents and purposes, historically illiterate. It's a disease eating away at our national memory. And the tests, the results of the tests just run by the Education Department, which indicate that 60% of our high school graduates don't even have basic understanding of American history. Those tests, in my view, are conservative in their warning. It's worse than that. And what's just as important is that the people who don't know any history don't care that they don't know any history. They don't see any relevance to it. Now, it's commonplace and understandable to say that history has been made boring by teaching dates and obscure treaties and military victories and the names of presidents who didn't matter all that much to begin with and so forth. And most of the problem with the teaching of history, most of the reason it's made deadly is just because of that. But it doesn't have to be, it shouldn't be, and in fact, it's hard to understand how it ever can be. How could the story of our country, for example, ever be made dull? But it is. And it's made dull very often by dull teachers who are uninspired, unmotivated, and by exceedingly dull, tedious, endless textbooks. If you had to go home tonight and read one of those textbooks, believe me, you would be sorry. It's almost as if some of them, it's almost as if they're designed to smother any interest that anyone might have in the living, breathing human beings of our past to whom we owe so much. 
and whose lives and accomplishments and mistakes we must understand. Just as we must understand that there is a cause and effect process that goes on in life, in history and in our own lives. And if children are being raised with no sense of cause and effect in the larger story of mankind or of their own country, maybe they're not going to get the idea that there's something called cause and effect in their own lives. That actions have consequences, that nothing happens in a vacuum, that there is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. There isn't, never was, never can be. If you think back on your own time in school, grade school, high school, university life, college life, and the courses you liked best and did best in, almost for certain they were taught by the teachers you liked best. And almost for certain the teachers you liked best were the teachers who were the most enthusiastic, the most enlarged by the material they were teaching. They were excited about it. They thought it was fascinating. And they wanted to bring you into the larger experience of that fascination. Now, we're not teaching our children history very well, if at all. Most of the teachers teaching history in the grade schools of this country today never had any history. And they have a plan book or a lesson plan, and they have to keep up with a certain number of requirements, and they're just about two or three steps or days ahead of the students. It's not the teacher's faults. It's not the student's faults. It's our faults, our faults. We talk so much today about leadership and the need for leadership, and we, when are we going to ever have leaders that really know how to stand up for what they believe and so forth and so on? I don't think we can wait for that. I think if we're looking for leadership, we have to look in the mirror. And if there's something wrong with our schools, and there is, we've really made a botch of education in this country, and it's a tragedy. It may be the worst tragedy of our time. Because if you analyze most of the problems that face, face us today, most of them at heart are because too many people don't know better. And they don't know better because they're uneducated. This country was founded on the idea, on the ideal of education. You go back to the earliest existing records of small towns in New England. The first thing on the record is the school leasing town land to pay for the teacher in the school. Jefferson said any nation that expects to be ignorant and free expects what never was and never will be. Our teachers have got to be better, better brought into the magic of their subject not just better educated. They need to catch the virus. They need to find out that history isn't a lot of dull dates to be memorized. History is about people and life, and that the research, the investigation, the reading is like being on a detective case, and that the record of those lives past is often far more revealing and personal and detailed and fascinating than the record of our own lives because we keep so few records.
and we're keeping so few records. We, the generation that's supposed to have all this information, we're probably going to leave almost no record of ourselves at all. We don't write letters, we don't keep diaries, and most of our records are on various forms of electronic reproduction, which are, pro which are very subject to failure or erasure over time. We have got, we have absolutely got to stop this absurd, short-sighted, mean-spirited business of cutting back on the teaching of art and music and theater and all of the performing arts in the schools. We have got to come. We are going to be, we are, we are going to be cheating our children. I went to a school in Pittsburgh where music and art and auditorium, as we called it, theater, was taught in the public school every day. And never, ever were we given any thought, any idea, the least notion that this, these were somehow frills. They aren't frills. They're part of life. It's as if we're going to cut back on the potential of, of experiencing life in those children. And where in the world are our performers going to come from? Where in the world are our audiences going to come from? Who's going to design the cars and the, and the clothing and the book jackets? Who's going, to, who's going to be in the plays on Broadway? Who's going to write them? Who is going to paint the picture? Where are the sculptors going to come? And where are the audiences going to come from if we just dismiss that? If you ever get a sense that maybe we are in a decline, that, it seems to me, is a measure of it. And the excuse that there isn't money is nonsense. Of course there's money. You measure a society not by how much money it has, but how it spends its money. For what? I'm uh, trying as best I can to help the, with the teaching of history to teachers, talking about the teaching of history with teachers and with a group called the Council for History Education, and we bring teachers to college campuses or university campuses around the country to work in groups every summer, and every summer it works wonderfully. We have to have better books written for youngsters. We have to start early. The earlier the better. Grade school, that's where to begin. And grade school is the time when those children can learn anything just like that. They're like sponges. And we have got to stop this absolutely short-sighted, absurd business of cutting back on the requirements for foreign languages in our colleges and universities. The idea that, that we're, we talk about one world and the global village and all of that. And yet many of our best universities and colleges in the country do not any longer require a language for graduation. How silly. And apart from its economic value, it's again cutting back, reducing the sphere of one's experience to be alive. That's what history is. History isn't just something you do to be a better citizen. You will be a better citizen. History isn't just something you do to better understand human nature. You will understand human nature better with a sense of history. History is part of life. It's, it's part of the experience of being alive as much as art or music or poetry. 
why would we want to confine ourselves in time any more than we would want to confine ourselves on the map in space? And believe me, we are raising a generation of people who are acutely provincial in time. I'm, um, I'm really quite optimistic about the country. That doesn't mean there aren't problems, but I think that we have tremendous potential and more opportunity than ever before, and certainly in the field of history there's never been more opportunity because so many different aspects of historic investigation are opening up to young scholars. I'm, uh, I'm encouraged by my own children, my five children, and I see their idealism very much alive. I see the kinds of careers they're choosing. I'm very encouraged by my grandchildren. I see them doing reports on Egypt. They know where Egypt is. <laughs> David Eisenhower likes to tell the story of checking into a motel and uh, he said, you have a room for Eisenhower to the young woman behind the check-in counter and she said, how do you spell that? And he said, E-I-S-E-N-H-O-W-E-R. She was writing it down and she looked up and she said, oh yes, I should have known, just like the boulevard. <laughs> when we uh, gathered here this morning, the organist was, a wonderful organist, was playing America the Beautiful. And we, uh, we love it, we're moved by it, we sing it, but I wonder how often we stop to think about some of the lyrics. Catherine Lee Bates, wonderful lyrics. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. Self-control, standards, rules that liberate Easy, easy and happiness are not synonymous. And if that sounds a little too Presbyterian, you'll have to uh, <laughs> excuse me. We are a hard working nation and always have been. We are a nation and always have been who judges which judges people. We judge people by their work. Does he do good work? Is she good at her job? We are a people who have had, who have had to work and who have found our identity in our work. What we have accomplished. Excellence. Old John Adams sitting alone in his house in Braintree, Massachusetts, very near the end of his life, 90 years old, is called upon by young Ralph Waldo Emerson. What does he think of the state of the country, the young man asked the old president. He said, I would that there were more ambition in the country. And by that he said, I mean ambition of the worthy kind, ambition to excel. Not to be rich or powerful. He didn't say anything about that. To excel. 
and to excel in all fields, all opportunities. Every young American going to school, whether it's grade school, high school, college, should feel that they've walked into a wonderful buffet where they can pick and choose and enjoy the chance to know more and catch the excitement of curiosity, catch the excitement of discovery. And somewhere along the line, we must change our system so that taking risks is rewarded in school and imagination is rewarded in school. That's what's so marvelous about painting and drawing. In painting and drawing also, you only learn, and in music, you only learn by doing it. You can't play the piano unless you play the piano. So we've got to bring a hands-on kind of lab technique, if you will, from science and the human, and technology to the teaching of the humanities. And if we do that, if we get the teachers excited, interested, involved with the material through that working in the material itself, the magic happens. List the number of things you can do with a brick. Take out a piece of paper and write down all the things you can do with a brick. There was a wonderful teacher who once taught physics, and he, he graded differently from everybody else. And one of his physics questions was about the problem of having a barometer and a piece of rope, a long line of rope. And the question was that there's a high-rise building, and you have the rope, and you have the barometer. How can you determine the height? This was a teacher who believed in rewarding, in rewarding imagination, and that not stressing that there's only one answer to every question. It's either right or wrong, and if you're wrong, you're out. One student got a B because he said he would go up to the top of the building, he went to the building, go up the elevator, go up the top of the building, tie the barometer around the end of the rope, and lower the rope down, uh, and pull it back up, and then measure how long the rope was. Needless to say, that was not the right answer, but it was a perfectly good answer, so he gave him a perfectly good grade for using his head, using his imagination. The one who got the A said he would go up to the building and he'd find out where the superintendent's office was, and, <laughs> and he said, I would knock on the door, and when the superintendent came to the door, I'd say, you see this beautiful barometer? It's yours if you tell me how tall the building is. <laughs> Teachers must be encouragers. They must encourage students to take risk. They must encourage students to find out things on their own, and they must encourage students to use their imagination. The discipline, the right and the wrong, is fine under some circumstances. But most of all, those same teachers that you remember were encouragers. And since we are all teachers, all of us, in one way or another, and our attitude affects those we are teaching. We must all be encouragers. I think that's the safest, fastest, and the most interesting route to a more civil society.
Thank you, Mr. McCullough. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum. Today's guest is David McCullough, who has just spoken on the topic, American Society, Civil and Uncivil. While the ushers collect the questions here in the sanctuary, those of you who are listening on the radio may also call in a question for Mr. McCullough by dialing area code 612-332-3421. 332-3421. Mr. McCullough, if you are ready now to begin the question and answer period, would you share with us uh, a teacher who most influenced you in terms of your own imag imagination and your ability to take risks in learning? Well, there were, there were several, and I think if uh, we're lucky, we've, if you've had several in your life, you're, that's good, that's lucky. I would, I would say that the one person who did more to open the windows for me was a professor at Yale in the Department of History of Art and Architecture, Vincent Scully, who was and is one of the great platform speakers uh, in Yale's history and who conveyed to all of us that the world as we had perceived it up until then was a far richer and more interesting place than we realized. He, he, he let us look at what was around us in buildings and paintings and sculpture in a way that uh, I wouldn't trade for anything. I think that um, there is no way that those of us, and there were many of us, thousands of us down through the years as, a, as the cumulative student body of Scully students grew, who uh, would trade that for anything. Uh, I'd just like to say one quick thing, which thinking of Vincent Scully reminds me of. We, we, have a, we hear a lot about the information highway and all the wonders of the computer and electronic data. Information isn't learning. Information isn't learning. Learning only happens with books and teachers. And if we think, if we believe that we are going to solve all the problems of education or that we are going to move to a level higher than we are now just because we spend a lot of money and make a lot of fanfare over computers, we are dead wrong. Thank you. Thank you. Could you comment or expand on the quote of Justice Earl Warren, who said, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Well, Earl Warren was a very wise man, but like many wise men, um, he could be wrong. <laughs> I don't know where we can learn more than from history. And one of the lessons from history is that then was then and now is now. You can't simply take what happened in the past and transport it into the present and say, well, that will work now or this situation now, because no two times are the same. That's among other things, the hardest idea to convey in teaching history. 
that we all live in a kind of environment of culture, call it what you will, which makes our perception, our understanding uh, different from that of other people in other eras and different from the eras that will succeed us. I think the lessons of history are largely lessons taught by example, and they are lessons in appreciation. And as I said earlier, it is about people, and because the, what makes history so fascinating is it deals with the two great mysteries of life, human nature and time. And there are no more rewarding subjects. Thank you. Please comment on what I see as a growing selfishness in our culture, individuals, communities, corporations, government leaders. I don't think there's any question about a growing selfishness, and I think it's in part because of the, the rapid acceleration of forces, elements in our way of life that are separating us from each other. Uh, virtual reality is replacing the real thing. Telecommunications, teleconferences, where everybody can sit in front of a screen and talk with each other wherever they are in the world. That all may be very useful and fine under certain circumstances, but that's separating us from the actual experience of contact with fellow human beings. The people who would rather use the machine at the bank to, that changes money than to talk to the teller. Uh, I don't think that there's um, any question there's a an increase in selfishness, and I think selfishness is one of the worst of human failings. Generosity is what matters, and most of generosity at heart is based on empathy. And if, you, if there's any field that conveys the need for empathy, it's history. You can't be an historian without empathy, for one thing. You have to put yourself in the other person's place as best possible. Thank you. One person asks, does American history have patterns? Does history repeat itself? Well, yes, indeed, it does. Um, they say history historians are the ones that really repeat themselves, but uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Truman, Harry Truman once observed, it's a marvelous observation, the only new thing in the world is the history you don't know. One person writes, I am a graduating high school senior who loves history. One thing, one thing I regret most about my high school career is the dismal quality of the social studies department. Person doesn't say what school this is, but <laughs> what would you recommend to students who are hampered by poor teachers? Read. Read good books. Read. Uh... A Night to Remember about the sinking of the Titanic. Read uh, Barbara Tuckman's uh, The Guns of August. Read Bruce Catton's A Stillness at Appomattox. Uh, read the uh, wonderful book by Margaret Leach called Reveille in Washington about Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. Uh, read some of our superb present day biographers and historians. Read books. Read, 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 read. That's it. This is a, a question from one of those listening in on the radio. What is your attitude toward children misbehaving and discipline in the classroom? How can we encourage children to learn if their behavior is too extreme to reach them? 
Well, I can't speak from ex the experience of working with children who are um, abnormally unruly. But my experience with children that I have taught and with my own children is that if you're, what you're doing and saying and bringing out in them is interesting enough, either as a group or individually, behavior is not going to be a problem. Let me say, I think that there's, there, there are so many parables in history, and one of the, my favorite is the, is the story of why the French failed in Panama. The French failed in Panama because they tried to overcome the Chagres River, tried to figure out how to deal with this problem, and they couldn't, and it didn't work. We went in, and we saw the, that the problem was the solution. You use the force, the power of this immense river to create an artificial lake, and you bridge the isthmus of Panama with an artificial lake, lift the boats up by a series of locks, and take them over the, the isthmus and down, rather than trying to dig through the river. The solution to the problem is the problem. The solution to our children is the children. It's in them, their talent, their energy, their brains, their creativity. It's in them. They're not greatly different from children of any time. It's just that we are treating them differently and they are growing up in a very competitive, a culture that is competing for their time because they mean money. And because we live in a, in a society, a culture where it's so easy, it's so very easy to tune out boredom, so very easy to pass the babysitting problem to the television set. However little television children watch, however little television you watch, you should watch less. Except for public television. I was just going to say, <laughs> one person asks, is there a kind of golden era in the American public education history that you would hold up as an ideal for us at this moment in time? I'm not a great believer in golden eras. Uh, it all depends on in what field. Uh, I'm not very good about, or not very fond of labeling eras. The 1930s, for example, are known as the Depression era and, and a time of great despair and darkness for many people, and it was, but 1930s was the great era, era in particle physics. Uh, the, um, the period between the end of the, of the 19th century and the start of World War II, uh, one rather, uh, say 1901 up to about 1913, 14, was a marvelous period in uh, American life and a very good period in American education, but American education was very uh, uh, restricted then. The problem with our, with our education today is that we've made it available to everybody, but we've also watered the stocks so much. Uh, we've lowered our standards so that many of these degrees, many of these uh, programs don't mean anything. They, they simply don't stand up. And we have high schools all over the country sending children on to college, young Americans on to college, who, who can't really read with the idea, well, they'll solve that when they get to college. And believe me, it's, it's just as prevalent a problem in the, in the best of our colleges as it is in some of the lesser known colleges. One person asks, is the homeschooling movement a positive or negative force in this country's public education? 
I don't know about that. All I know is that I've talked to some of the parents who are doing it, and the parents think it's wonderful. They love the adventure and the um, closeness that develops with their children uh, through these programs. I, I, I don't know. I grew up in a time when public school was um, considered one of the great achievements of American life, and I think it should be. I think it has to be just as our public library system, one of the greatest of all of our institutions, still there, available to everybody, and free, free. Isn't that wonderful? If you've traveled abroad, you know it's not like that everywhere else. And there's, in effect, there's no, there's no excuse for not being educated, because we can all go to the library. And the libraries today, because of the computers, who can, which can hook into the resources of major libraries, make everything available to everyone everywhere. And that's very exciting. Maybe we should develop some kind of a mentor system where people who can't go to college or people who are having trouble in high school can come to neighbors, citizens, who will guide them in their reading at the public library. It would cost nothing. And everybody would benefit from it. Everybody involved in it would benefit from it. Two questions having to do with textbooks. Are textbooks boring because the authors are afraid of offending us? They seek to avoid controversy. And were the teachers in the textbooks of a generation ago really all that much better than they are now? And if so, why? Well, that, that's quite a question. Um, yes, the textbooks are boring mostly because they're designed and written by committee. You remember the Edsel automobile that was uh, produced by committee. Uh, I don't know anything very good that was ever done by committee. And they have state standards they must fill. And now there's this concern about politically correct. And it's real. And uh, they're boring, they're dull. I'm not so concerned about whether Edison's mentioned five times or somebody else is only mentioned two times and all that argument that goes on is really beside the point. Is anybody who reads the book gonna care? Is anybody who reads the book gonna have the light go on and get interested? Yes, teachers were better before. I say that because the before are the only ones I ever knew. <laughs> I think there are some teachers today who are simply marvelous, but they are overwhelmed with these requirements and all the, the, the red tape, the bureaucracy that an ordinary teacher has to deal with. They need, they need more time to think, more time to concern themselves with their students and what they are learning not how to teach, what are they learning? How do we learn? That's the question we have to give much more attention to. Thank you. And the, way you, and the way you learn, you know it, you, you do it yourself. If you work the problem out yourself, if you build the building, if you paint the picture, if you unsort the tangle of the evidence and put the case back together, you learn it and you learn it in a way you never forget it. Our students today are very good at knowing the reading teacher's mind. What does teacher want? Particularly the ones that get to the good colleges. And they're very good at taking a test. 
we're all pretty good at taking a test. We can all cram for an exam, and we can all go in and do a pretty good job and get a good grade, but it's all gone in about two weeks. That's not the point. We want to go come out of the experience of education ready to really start reading, really start looking around, really start enjoying the, the cornucopia of this culture at its best. Which of your books did you enjoy writing the most and why? Well, I've enjoyed writing them all and each for different reasons. It's a little like asking which of your children you like best. Uh, but I really have always have the same answer to that question, and the book that I like best is the book I'm working on. And the book I'm now working on, which I, re I think may be the most wonderful material I've ever had the privilege of working with, is about the interconnecting, inter the crisscrossing lives of Jefferson and John Adams, who... Um, are immensely interesting human beings, and of course, each in his own way of tremendous importance. And with Adams comes Abigail, who is also a marvelous character to learn and study. Uh, they, as you may know, uh, died on the same day. Uh, they began as friends and fellow revolutionaries. They then went to Europe, where they became even closer friends, Adams as our ambassador to England and Jefferson as our minister to France. And uh, then they came back and became part of the George Washington administration, Jefferson as our first secretary of state, Adams as, of course, vice president. And then each, uh, Adams first, Jefferson second, became president, and then they retired. In the meantime, they'd become rivals, uh, well, almost worse than rivals, almost enemies. There were years when they didn't speak. It's at this point when the uh, two-party system comes to pass, the split, and this, their, their break is part of that. They are, if you will, emblematic of that. And then through a mutual friend, Benjamin Rush of Philadelphia, they have a reconciliation and proceed to carry on one of the most majestic uh, correspondences in our language uh, from about 18. 11 to 1826 when they died, and they didn't just die on the same day, they died on the 4th of July. And uh, that, of course, doesn't happen in real life, does it? Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, enjoying it more than I can say. I thought for a while as I was telling one of your uh, neighbors here and one of our best historians, Paul Nagel, who's here today, that when I began work on the project, I thought maybe that uh, Mr. Jefferson would be upstaging John Adams and that it would be hard for Adams to uh, not uh, be in the shadows. Well, that's become the least of my worries. John Adams is one of the most interesting Americans I've ever uh, known anything about and, a, and, a, and an admirable in the extreme. Civic virtue is what they believed in. And they believed in decent ambition for themselves and for their country. And they saw the two as in harmony. They were not without flaw. They were quite imperfect. They were human beings. Each of them was full of contradictions and complexities. And uh, once you get beyond the, uh, the wigs and the buckled shoes and all that, you realize that this was one of the great times in our nation's history and these were among the very greatest Americans we've ever had.
truly great human beings. One, uh, this, this may require a longer answer than I would hope for because I want to leave one last question having to do with personal influences that make you who you are today. But one person asks, what are you going to tell us in your new book about Adams and Jefferson that is new? A lot. A lot. It's <laughs> a good short answer, David. <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, this series, the Town Hall Forum, is about key issues that face us all in society. It is also about character, and it's about conscience. It's about ethics. Can you tell us what in your own formation in childhood and adolescence and into adulthood, if you care to, has uh, brought you to see the world the way you see it today and brings you to these concerns? Well, that's a great compliment to ask somebody that question. I grew up in a family of four sons. I was number three. Uh, my father had an electrical supply business. We were Scotch-Irish. Germans, uh, but we never thought that way. We were Americans, and uh, our family first settled in Western Pennsylvania before the Revolutionary War. And um, my father used to say that uh, they probably were very poor and uh, perhaps illiterate, but that among them were men of science. They knew how to make whiskey. <laughs> We uh, met at dinner every night. If you've seen uh, the Gurney play, The Dining Room, I, I had a lot of deja vu watching that play. We met at the, in the dining room for dinner every night, the whole family, uh, including my grandmother, wonderful, sweet woman. My father, after about 1937, thought that Franklin Roosevelt was the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the country. And my grandmother thought that Franklin Roosevelt could do no wrong. And they would discuss this at great length at the dinner table. <laughs> and what made it so memorable was that they were both extremely hard of hearing. <laughs> I was raised, as I'm sure lots of you were, on the old idea that any job worth doing is worth doing well. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Be good to your neighbor, tell the truth all of those stars to steer by. I went to wonderful schools, public schools, and to Yale University, which um, I loved, still do. I think that the influence of my parents was all to the good. I know it was. We were certainly encouraged to do anything we wanted. I have a brother who became an astronomer, a brother who became a musician, a brother who became an engineer, and I became, well, I guess there were jury's still out on that, but I, I, uh, my father used to say, I would say, I'm going to uh, Minneapolis to speak, let's say. He said, oh, that's wonderful. Maybe, the, maybe somebody there will offer you a job. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of storytellers in the family, and I loved that. And we spent the summer in the country uh, 
working on a farm where there was no electricity, where the hay was brought in by hand. I tell this to my children, they can't believe it. Hand pump, no uh, plumbing. I loved it. Every, oh, that was heaven to, for us. And, uh, but then on uh, December uh, 18th, I wish she were here, 1954, I made the best decision of my life. And uh, my wife, my editor-in-chief, my mission control, my brain trust, uh, Rosalie uh, Barnes McCullough, has had the greatest influence on me of anybody, uh, by far. And if she were here, you'd see right, right away why. And uh, she grew up in a very interesting family in Massachusetts. Uh, we care a lot about our family and her family and mine. And I think I had the huge advantage, the huge advantage of growing up in a house with books. And we're influenced by that too. We're influenced by the novels we read and the poetry we read. And heaven knows, um, I, could, I can tell you that there have, are books that changed my life. Uh, I mentioned Bruce Catton's A Stillness at Appomattox. I had no idea that I was going to write history. I was a, an English major in college. I started out as a magazine writer. But when I read that wonderful book, it was a present from my aunt, graduation present from college. I read that wonderful book and I, I saw the possibilities in, in reading history that was real and about real people. And I thought I was I wanted to be a writer, I knew that, and I thought maybe I would write novels or plays. I love the theater. And by the way, there's nothing, in my view, nothing that does more for a child than to be in a play. Because you learn so much about cooperation and standards and doing what's expected because if you don't do it, the whole thing falls apart. Why aren't there good plays about historic events for small children to put on in the grade school? Why aren't there more of those? I think that the, uh, that the role of books in my life, both the printed word and illustrations, we all in those days had lots of diseases as children, measles, mumps, chicken pox, and you had to stay in bed, and there was no television. So I'd go to the shelf and pull down those wonderful Scribner editions of the classics illustrated by N.C. Wyeth, and I'd sit there by the hour just looking at the pictures and using imagination. I know every one of those wonderful paintings, Last of the Mohicans paintings, for example, they're just indelible in my mind, and I thank God that I had the chance to do that. I've also had some people in my professional life who've been extremely important, including Mr. Catton, because I wound up working at American Heritage where he shared another office, same floor, I was helped enormously by Richard Ketchum, and a great American uh, historian and specialist in Native American history, Alvin Josephi. And I had the chance to meet the novelist and know the novelist Conrad Richter, who probably did more to help me with my writing at an early stage than anybody else. Paul Horgan, Wallace Stegner, Barbara Tuckman. Barbara Tuckman was really a star for me to steer by. And I wanted to be like that. I wanted to do what they'd done, because they, like I, were in effect lap lapsed journalists. They were, they were writers who had come to history on their own. I, I've 
often think of myself as an amateur, amateur historian, amateur biographer, in that I do it in the, in the true meaning of the word amateur, out of love. That's what it means. You do what you're doing out of love. I would, I would pay to do what I do. And uh, I, I want to get up out of bed every, every morning and uh, I told Rosalie that I only have, a, a, the last book I wrote took 10 years, but I told her I only have about four 10-year books left in me. So. <laughs> David McCullough, thank you for giving us stars to steer by and for reminding us of hope and the sources of hope uh, for setting before us a task and an opportunity to serve and to make the country stronger. Uh, we thank you for being here today and if, you're, if your life depended on us paying for it, you'd be in good shape. We could pass the collection plates right here. Right. Thank you for thank being you. with us. Thank you.